welcome to Offwatch, a podcast by the Ocean Race. Over the last two months, we've been talking to some of the big names from the race's past, and it's no surprise to see these people popping up again and again in multiple campaigns as their CVs are rammed full of amazing achievements. But what if you're a first-timer? How do you break into this scene? Well, this week, I spoke to British sailor Hannah Diamond, who narrowly missed out on an Olympic spot for Rio 2016, and then decided to turn her hand to offshore sailing, and she landed a place with Vestas 11th Hour Racing in the last edition. She talked me through some of the highs and lows and some of the lessons that she had to learn very fast on how to survive in the ocean race. Enjoy. If you want to learn how tough the ocean race is, you can talk to the old veterans who can recall decades of adventures, or you can talk to the first timers who made that big dive into the deep end and hear how that first lap of the planet has changed them. Hannah Diamond is a British Olympic hopeful who made the transition into Ocean Racer during the last edition with Vestas 11th Hour Racing. Now, that was a team that faced more unexpected challenges than most campaigns. Hannah, thank you very much for taking the time to to join me. And we're going to jump into the last edition in detail in a minute. But before I do, I remember seeing an interview with you. And I think it was at the start of leg seven. And you were talking about one of the more rewarding aspects of the race is being a part of a team that you can rely on and that being something that you took some pride in then looking back with with obviously everything that happened during that last edition is it that group of people is that still something that that gives you pride yeah definitely i think something i hadn't really anticipated before the race was how important the teamwork aspect of it would be and that's definitely kind of my biggest lasting memory of the race is how through everything that we experienced as a team, we didn't have a choice but to pull together. Um, and if you didn't have the right mix of people on board, then you know just getting through the race wouldn't be possible. So um, even if it was something I hadn't considered to be of top importance before the race, it's definitely something that I remember now as being one of my favorite parts of how we kind of learned each other and how we pulled together as a team. Because I think it's important to point out that, you know, you did come into the ocean race as maybe lacking a little bit of experience, maybe, maybe with big boats, but certainly not lacking any experience in terms of being a professional athlete. You've been somebody that had been part of the British sailing team, campaigning, trying to get an Olympic slot. And I mean, I remember, and I think it's important to sort of point out to everybody else, we know where you've been from. You know, on the run-up to 2016 in Rio, you, you were almost going to go to the Games. Yeah, my sailing career has been... Like someone asked me the other day if I would swap with anyone else, would I take a different path at any point? And I said, absolutely not. I think when you are 10 years old and you dream of going to the Olympics, you don't necessarily see all the bumps in the road that you're going to encounter. Um, and I don't actually think I would have ended up doing the ocean race if I been successful in being selected for the Olympics in 2016. So I definitely wouldn't change any of the things that I've done. And I really appreciate all the things I've learned along the way, but it has been a culmination of now kind of 15 years. Um, When I was very little, I knew that sailing is what I wanted to do and I've done very little else really. Um, So I'm really proud of what I've achieved so far. Hopefully there's more to come, but um, 
I was experienced. I was inexperienced at the start of the race. Um, but I actually think, uh, I learned through the race and I was really fortunate to have been on a team with some really, really experienced sailors. And I think it's the kind of race where whatever level anyone's at, whether it's an individual or a team at the beginning of the race, you're not going to be good enough if you haven't continued to progress at the end of the race. Um, which I think was really interesting and definitely something that kind of Olympic sailing had helped me with just always looking for that, that next level. Um, and I don't necessarily feel like I'm experienced now, but you know, every day <laughs> sailing, you learn a little bit more, um, which is quite a cool part of the sport, I think. Well, well, let's start there then. So, so let's start on that transition. So you've, you found out you're not going to go to 2016 and, you know, like you say, you, you, you were close, you know, you, you were, I mean, it was basically between you and one other NACRA 17 pair. It didn't go your way. There we go. Um, at that point when you realize, okay, this road looks like it's coming to an end, you seem to sort of make a little bit of a turn into, you know, big boat sailing and all the rest of it. What made you think, okay, we're going to try a slightly different path. Well, actually wasn't the, ocean race originally that kind of took me away from dinghy sailing for a bit and into the big boat scene. Um, I found out that we lost the trials and actually the Olympic trial process was incredible for me as a person. I felt really honored to be, have been able to go through a process where everything I'd wanted for ever since I could remember disappeared in front of me. And all I felt was very clear about the mistakes that we've made and the lessons that we learned. I didn't feel like I didn't feel hard done by or anything. I just was like, wow, this really pointed out some holes in, in our campaign. Um, and that process was really kind of intriguing for me. Just, I thought I'd be so devastated, um, and disappointed, but I actually just felt like what an experience to go through to be at such a high competing at such a high level. Um, and I was very kind of I don't know if it's a weird word, but like awake through all of it. And I just, um, not many people get to experience that where you put ev absolutely everything on the line. Um, you only ever see the stories of people winning gold medals or winning Olympic selections. You never hear the stories of people that don't. And um, I actually found it a really like, amazing process to go through, even though I was obviously really kind of gutted that we, we didn't reach the Olympics in the end. But um I just wanted a bit of a break. My plan was to take a couple of months out of the NACRA 17, do some other sailing. I knew there were so many aspects of the sport that I didn't know as much about and I wanted to explore some of them. Um, so I spent 2016 um, sailing, like, ha having fun and enjoying sailing. And I was really lucky to um, get on some good boats, learn from some really, really, really good people. And it was the first time in my life I didn't really have a plan of each day what I was trying to do. And it was the end of that year that they announced the rule um, with the crew to have two females on board and obviously two under 30s. And I remember texting my mum and saying, the rules just come out for the ocean race. Do you think it's something I should do? And she was like, no. <laughs> <laughs> but I just thought, um, if I don't give this a go now, I'll never know if it's something that I could have been good enough to do. Um, I didn't have many contacts in the big boat, um, arena. I was obviously inexperienced. And so I just, from that day set out to be, whatever, like, do whatever I needed to do to get myself on a team. 
It's really interesting you say that you didn't have that many contacts because let's be honest, that's probably the biggest asset that any of us could have. You know, loads of people want to do the race. So, I mean, you obviously then go and do the race. You know, you're there doing a transatlantic trial with, um, you know, Mark and Charlie on board Vestas 11th Hour Racing. How did you get from, I'm going to try and chase this down to actually being on board, holding a sheet, trimming? To be honest, I'm sure a lot of it actually comes down to chance because uh, I it kind of seemed way too big for me to be able to approach. I didn't even know where to start. And I was lucky. I live in, in Hamble, which is full of sailors. Um, and I'd met a few of them, but I was very much from a different world. You know, Olympic sailing, big boat sailing in the UK don't really cross paths at all. And I was always the odd one out living here, sailing my boat with one other person when there's, you know, 40, 50 footers sailing with 10 to 12 people. And, you know, no one really understood what I did. And I, to be honest, didn't really understand what they did. And um, so it took a, a long time of kind of just being happy to learn from the bottom and accept that some of the roles I was doing were kind of, I wasn't adding my experience. I was just doing whatever needed to be done on board uh, before I was happy enough to approach someone to try and get a trial on a team. And I spoke to a few different people. Um, and I ended up really randomly, um, doing the Wilder St. Bart's, uh, in 2017 and Charlie Enright was just being hounded by people. <laughs> he was never on his own. The poor guy was, you know, he just announced that they were, they were going to be going again as best as length hour racing. And I remember thinking, oh, if I could just speak to Charlie, then you know, I'm in a lot better shape than I am now with absolutely nothing. Um, anyway, I was fortunate enough to have some friends who had finished Olympic sailing at 2016. Then they'd also gone on to doing some big boat stuff. And they uh, kind of recommended me to Phil Harmer, who had just signed up to be part of Best Slump Hour at the time. Um, and kind of through those conversations, I wasn't really involved in. Um, I ended up having a conversation with Charlie and he invited me to do a transatlantic with them about three weeks later. Um, so I flew to Newport and I didn't know anyone on board. I'd never been to Newport before. I'd never sailed a 65 footer before. And we were just about to cross the Atlantic to sail back home. So th this is the bit that I, that I find really, really fascinating because yes, all the twists and turns of the race, but also you're, you're, you're in a situation now where you want to appear that you are so good. You want to pick, oh, I know absolutely everything, but of course you don't, you, you, you can't until you've done all the miles and the miles and the miles. How did you try and conduct yourself on that, that boat? You know, what, what did you ask lots of stupid, but vital <laughs> questions or did you try and go, Oh no, I know exactly what I'm doing. I, thought if I get on this boat and talk like I know what I'm talking about, they're going to think I'm stupid because everyone who was there had done the previous race with different teams. Right. And I just had in my mind, like, this is not my world. This is their world. And I need to be a positive part of it, but I can't pretend that I'm an expert at this right now because I'm not, and I can't pull it off if I pretend to be. So um, we actually did a couple of days kind of corporate sailing with some of the sponsors that they'd signed up early on. Um, while the boat was in its kind of home port of Newport. And remember day one, you know, I was saying to everyone, hi, I'm Hannah. I didn't know anyone. And I wasn't even sure if I could remember all of their names at that time. And um, we had a kind of morning briefing. I'd never set foot 
on the boat before. Um, and he was like, okay, Hannah, you're going to be trimming today. And we have corporate guests on board. And I just remember thinking like, okay, I need to <laughs> sure I have a good day today. <laughs> so we did that for three or four days. And I don't think I had any huge errors. I had Phil, um, kind of looking over my shoulder, which, um, I was like, Oh, if I can get him on board, um, kind of convince him that I know a little bit what I'm talking about, then, um, I should be all right. Um, and it was just, I remember just being so nervous because it's really easy in Olympic sailing to know where you are in terms of form, because you're racing so often and you race the same people all the time. So you've got a results sheet coming out, you know, every other week, especially in the summer, um, where you've got kind of a, a, a judgment by from yourself, but also from other people on whether you're any good or not. And in the big way world, it's completely different because mm. you have to portray your skills to other people in a way that's not measured by numbers and a results card. Yeah, sure. I mean, you, you, you can be a good trimmer on a bad boat. Yeah, and it, so just trying to... I just had an idea in my head of what uh, what I could bring and... I couldn't pretend that I was an expert in Volvo 65 um, because I wasn't. And there were so many people there who were. So I just thought, okay, well, I'm quite a positive person. Um, I pick things up quite quickly. I'd really like to be a trimmer. Um, so as long as I'm progressing, as well as kind of showing that I've got a base level of knowledge. Um, I mean, these, these boats are enormous and powerful things. They're not, there's no joking about it. Um, you have to, you know, know a fair amount about big boats and winches and loads of everything before you even jump on board, if, even if it's just for a kind of a pro-am race or a sail. Um, so I had done as much research as I could into that, you know, spoken to people who did the previous race whenever I could. Um, but it was pretty terrifying to begin with. <laughs> what, what Was there any... Um... I'm 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 desperately seeking you to sort of try and you know validate my my own inadequacies in terms of sailing because whenever I jump on board a boat, I'm always thinking I don't know what that bit of rope is like I don't know what that button does I I, I forget the way that this works and you have to ask those silly questions. W was there a moment where you thought I'm going to have to ask this question? I know that this question is going to, in my mind at least, appear very basic. Was there something where you where you can remember going, okay, swallow the pride. What does this do? How do I do this? Well, I think the good thing for me was that I didn't really have any pride. I think when you... Put, <laughs> but honestly, it sounds when, bad the way you say it, but I know what you mean. When you put so much into a campaign like I had in my Olympic sailing, you know, John and I really thought that we were going to be competing at the Olympics uh, in 2016. Um, and you kind of see all of that come crashing down in front of you when you feel like you've been doing a really good job and, you know, you're some of the top sailors in that class in the world. Um, I think that gives you a lot of perspective. And uh, I was kind of confident in my own ability once that once we got into everything that I was quite happy to be like, look, I, I mean, I can't be expected to know mm. how all these gear changes work exactly. Like what gear do we jibe in? Um, but I think the hard thing is knowing which are the stupid questions. So there are some things that you should know. And other <laughs> things that, once, once you know the things that you, you can't be expected to know until you've been on the boat, then it's a lot easier to kind of be like, look, do you know, I actually have no idea what this does or how we do it. Um, and, you know, you're not racing at that point. So it's a lot better to ask it then than, you know, in the pre-start, something like that. 
so you you get on the boat you're there you've obviously impressed the right people you've obviously sort of um earned your place Vestas 11th hour racing wasn't i mean it, it didn't have the biggest lead in time to the race compared with some of the campaigns um so what was that when those days were ticking down to the you know the start in in Alicante did it feel like that time went quickly or was it a case of waiting for Christmas you know come on it can't come soon enough there was just so much to do in the time from when leg zero started and we did the fast net in August um and for me it was quite nice because I was based at home at that point so we had a bit of time with the whole team. I mean, I met Tony Mata the day before the start of the Fastnet. Um, I'd never met him before. And then we went off and did that. And that was my first Fastnet as well. Um, so, yeah, and it seems crazy to come from a background of where you you train for years and years and years for a week of racing that in the end might not even happen, you know, if you're not selected, to then be training for, you know, a couple of weeks for a race that lasts nine months. But, you know, that that's just the game. So... Um, I think we knew we we had a lot to do in the build up to the start, um, not just in terms of learning the boat, but also just the logistics of once you leave the base in in Lisbon, um, which is where we were before we even kind of before we went to Alicante for the the actual race start. Um, you basically have to have everything you need. I mean, in terms of spares, food, clothes, everything. Once those containers leave, they are on the road for the race. Um, and yeah, of course, it's possible to stock up with things here and there, but everything has to be ready to go so much in advance. Like the lists are just kind of endless. And I mean, the logistics behind the race blow my mind. Um, but as sailors, you're just trying to get every minute out of the day that you can to make sure that you're in the best spot uh, for the day, day one, the race start. Well, let's talk then about the start because leg one um, obviously goes pretty well. And I'm I'm curious to know from somebody who was inside the team at that point, um, Mark and Charlie, they always sort of come across as, uh, and, and I say this as a compliment, quite casual, very sort of down to earth, very kind of honest. Um, what was the belief in your team before you guys started the race? Where were your aspirations in terms of performance? Well, I think it was interesting because... Um we had a team of incredible experienced sailors and leg zero, I think for some people was kind of a marker of where people were at. But for us, it, it was just, we just need to tick off all the jobs on the boat. Um, you know, that was very much a build up. Um, and I didn't know that I was doing leg one until the day before we started. So I was <laughs> planning to be getting on the boat in Cape town. Um, and then we had an injury, uh, with one of the team. And so that meant that on the Friday, um, afternoon, it was kind of pack your bags, you're, you're on. So I hadn't done the import race or any of that. And I'd been, so, cause we had three girls on our team, um, and we were rotating. So I hadn't been on the boat for about a week, two weeks before the race start. And then all my expectations of how my time was going to be planned and my involvement with the team, the day before the start completely changed. Um, my parents and I were planning to have a nice weekend in Alicante, um, celebrate the start of the race. And then, you know, I was going to go home for a bit, um, and meet the team in Lisbon, but that all changed. And it was just kind of the most insane start, like start. Cause I just 
had to get ready in my head to be getting on the boat. I hadn't been on the boat sailing for, for two weeks at this point. Um, so to prepare myself kind of mentally as well as you know, get all my kit ready and things like that was, was quite full on. But the start was an amazing experience. The, the little import section before we headed off from Alicante um, was really full on. Um, there's a really good clip of me not wearing a smock, um, taking the J1 down on the bow, just being absolutely fire hosed. And it was kind of, this is how not to start your first world ocean race um, in terms of looking after yourself. But um, I think Tom Johnson said to me, just, we were on the way out through all the spectator boats. He was like, look up because this will never, like, this will never be the same again. Um, and the number of people that came out to watch the start was just incredible. And the environment that that creates is, is amazing. There was the good rumor going around um, that you guys had with Vestas, wind energy, that you guys had a little bit of access to computer power and navigation and, 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 and to modeling for coastal racing. And it was certainly, I remember you guys making a bit of a bold call, staying north. Uh, I think Axe Bell was the only boat that stayed with you. And it paid dividends as you were sort of sailing along the, the, um, the Spanish coast. Did you, ha did you have access to this? I mean, like, tell me, come on, come on, be honest. You know, or, or was it just, oh, you were just good? We had um, an amazing kind of onshore navigation team. Um, and yes, we accessed uh, different people when we were at each of the different venues. Um, and we had, yeah, one of the guys from Vestas definitely helped us out with their modeling. Um, and actually like that kind of background information is amazing, but it's, it was definitely, you know, a decision that was made on the boat that I think set us up to win that leg. Um, and watching sci-fi work is pretty incredible. He's so calm and collected and patient with his decision-making, um, especially when the risks and the, the gains and the losses are so big over such big distances. Um, so that, going back to sort of talking about teamwork, how he had information that we'd all discussed in the build-up to the leg start, but then obviously there's no contact with those people uh, once you've left the dock. So how he was able to kind of make those decisions based on the, there's such an element of trust involved in the information that you've been given before the start and then how that evolves and how you monitor the information that you're getting based on forecasting going forwards. Um, I mean, sci-fi is incredible navigator. Um, so it was pretty cool to see, I, I mean, it was a pretty bold decision in that first leg. Um, and just to see him be kind of so calm and happy that that was the right thing to do. Um, just kind of sets the tone with the rest of the boat. You're like, right, well, if we're going to split a little bit here, then trimmers have got to make sure we're going, you know, setting the sails right. And um, drivers got to make sure they're driving fast because, you know, this is a decision, a win or lose decision. So um, that's pretty cool. What a great way to begin that edition of the race with a win. I mean, I remember Mark and Charlie saying after their Alva Medica campaign, you know, we're back, we, you know, we're going to be a contender. And suddenly everybody's thinking, yeah, absolutely. You know, you are. Um, was it confirmation for you guys in the in the team that, you know what, we are as good as we think we are? Or was it, we can do this? I think, I mean, there's definitely never a lack of confidence in the team that we could get a really good result. And they, the goal was always to win the race from day one. I don't think you should really start the race if that's not your goal. <laughs> Um, yeah. we're not on a cruise around the world in any way. Um, it's a race, so we're there to win it. And, um, I think definitely for the people who had done a lot of races before, 
um, it was kind of a confirmation of, yeah, we've got an amazing team here. We can do something really special. Um, and actually on a personal note, I kind of felt a bit like I wasn't almost worthy of winning a leg straight off because I knew I was surrounded by this incredible team. And I think probably because I hadn't expected to do that leg, um, I just felt felt like the the gap between me and them had had become bigger rather than smaller because yeah I was on board and I was a I was a genuine part of that team but I thought people have put years and you know tens of years into into winning a, a Volvo leg and they're amazing sailors and some of them hadn't done that and I've just kind of jumped on I've, yeah I've worked really really hard to be here but I almost felt like I hadn't been through enough in ocean racing at that point to have won a leg of the Volvo and I, I, I'm really interested here to, to learn how you and the team dealt with that um, that thing that sailors all, always know about with the equator. Doldrums, heat, boredom. I mean, what was, how hard did that hit you as a challenge? I mean, the heat was definitely a challenge. Being from the UK, we haven't really experienced a lot like that. I mean, we, I mean, I've spent a lot of time in other countries, been really fortunate to travel with sailing for a long time now, but, um, mostly you're staying in air conditioned hotel rooms and just there being no escape from the heat is really draining. And so it's hard to sleep. And then when you're on deck, it's hard to concentrate and being able to keep hydrated and fueled, you, know, you completely lose your appetite when it's that hot, mm. um, which is just not sustainable over the, the length of the leg. So you have to kind of force yourself into the habit of eating and drinking, resting when you can. If you can't sleep, then you're resting um, as much, you know, getting as much rest as you can in your off watch. Because as we know in ocean sailing, you don't know if your next off watch is going to happen. You could be into a, a set of a series of jibes. You could just be peeling sails all the time. So um, there was a huge amount to learn for me. Um, I was on watch with Phil Harmer, which was really cool because he just takes everything like that in his stride. So all I kind of had to look, do was look at him and be like, what's Phil doing? Um, just kind of copy that. And um, I was in pretty good shape. But yeah, it was. it's difficult managing your expectations, I think, is the hardest thing because it's easy when you're sailing in 25 knots, you're making really quick progress to the finish. Mm. I think uh, we had eight days to go for five days. So we went <laughs> for five days um, and that really kind of eats away at you a little bit. What, um, what would have set you off in that position? Or what you would, was there anything that you would have to say to your teammates, don't do this because I am about to explode? <laughs> I don't know. I think there was one watch, I remember it was the middle of the day and I was just I was a bit dehydrated, I think, and there was just no escape from the heat and I was trimming. I was just thinking, I just need to go and get some water. But it was we were in such an intense battle. I think we'd been racing for nine days or something and you could actually see the rest of the fleet around us. So it was kind of like nobody move. And I was like, I just need someone to bring me something to drink <laughs> and then I'll be fine. And you know, and it was complete, I was absolutely fine. But um, in that moment, all I could think of was like, if, if I could just wake someone up and you think of taking someone's precious off watch minutes and I was like, no, I can't do that. Um, so your watch goes really slowly at that point. Um, but also if you, 
you, you're, you're completely in the hands of, of the doldrums and the, the small zephyrs of wind that are coming across with the clouds. And so you've got to take the wind kind of in any direction that it will take you. And sometimes that doesn't link you to the next bit of pressure. So it's really hard to deal with thinking longer term. You know, you've got this bit of breeze here, but actually it's taking you 180 degrees from where you're trying to go um, in the attempt of trying to link up with the next cloud. Um, so I think, yeah, it's a massive skill to be able to see much bigger picture. And that was something that was pretty difficult for me. And, and then I, I mean, looking back, the other challenge uh, from the doldrums um, or shortly afterwards, are you scared of lightning? Uh, I'm actually not that scared of lightning. Maybe I should be a bit more scared of lightning. But <laughs> so many events in other countries where there's a complete panic about lightning. Um, and I've always kind of thought, I guess maybe from growing up as a kid and sailing, maybe we shouldn't have been sailing in thunderstorms and things like that. But um, for me, the the bit about coming out of the doldrums was just the speed that things changed. Um, you know, every 10 minutes you could have a different sail up um, and just trying to be ahead of the game. You know, when you've got a normal, let's call it normal sailing conditions, you can plan ahead. So you know that you're going to be peeling through sails, for example. All of that just completely goes out of the window when you're coming out of the doldrums because it's very much reacting to what you've got right now um, and kind of being prepared for absolutely anything. So that was a bit of a, a mind sh mindset shift that we needed um, to have on board. And I think in that leg, we dealt with that really, really well and came out um, of the doldrums pretty well. Let's talk then about that, ne that next leg, as you say, leg seven. I mean, this is the iconic leg. You know, this is the one. Rounding of Cape Horn, Southern Ocean, and everything that's going to go along with that. Um, how how on earth do you even pack for that leg? As somebody that hasn't been down there before, because you, we talked earlier about asking stupid questions. I mean, I've got a stupid question. Uh, how many socks do you take? I mean, what on earth do you do? So it was quite funny when um, in the first leg, uh, we were coming through Gibraltar and it was 25 knots. Um, and we'd been in Lisbon and Alicante for a couple of months. So really acclimatized to that kind of weather and suddenly got a lot colder and I was absolutely freezing. And I remember Tony looking at me and thinking and saying, if you're cold here, then you're going to be <laughs> absolutely freezing in the Southern Ocean. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, you don't have a lot of space. We had these bags, I think uh, we kind of allowed ourselves about six kilos um, of clothes to last the duration of the leg. Um, and I was a bit worried about being cold because there's just no escape and it becomes a really long leg if you're cold for that amount of time. You can't sleep properly. Um, it's just miserable. So I think setting off to a leg like that, you have to be really aware that you have to look after your kit because if it gets wet it's not going to dry uh, there's condensation inside the boat so it drips on you icy cold water when you're sleeping um, I obviously didn't know any of this at the time because I hadn't been in the southern ocean before um, and actually in the in the pavilion that all the sailors gather in before the sailors parade before we um, leave the dock for the start um, Sophie Cizek from Matt Frey said to me um, she just kind of came up to me and we were chatting and there's it's an amazing atmosphere of genuine nerves from everyone, whether you're a first timer or you're fifth, sixth, seventh timer. I think Auckland is um, kind of a, a leg that is 
brings an element of nerves to everyone. Um, and Sophie said to me, she was like, oh, well, you're lucky because you don't know what's about to happen. <laughs> and at that point, I was kind of like, oh. Uh, and now I completely understand what she means. When you set off for the first time, it's all new and you don't know how, how cold, how windy, how extreme the weather can be um, and how kind of long it feels that you're putting yourself through some pretty intense conditions and now I completely get it but I don't know if I would then go and say that to someone who is about to do that leg for the first time yeah that's quite that's yeah yeah I mean I don't really know what to make about that but it's obviously obviously now you know you know how how tough it can be but um it, it was an incredible leg um in terms of racing obviously it was an incredible leg in terms of the history of the race and John Fisher and everything the bit that I want to ask you about was obviously you round Cape Horn and again, you guys are doing really well in this leg. You know, you're, I think you ran a Cape Horn in second. I think you were then, you know, well, before we get to what happened, when you rounded Cape Horn, did you think we're out of it? It's, it's, it's easier from here. You're, you're never comfortable definitely on, on that leg. Um, and I think it was about eight days in, I was kind of thinking this is, this is tough and we're still a long, long, long way from anywhere. So for me, seeing Cape Horn was a massive relief, especially after everything that had happened. Um, it was a massive relief just to be near land, even if it wasn't somewhere we could just kind of pull in. Um, so it was pretty strange after that, you know, everything that unfolded um, and, you know, the experience of the people before were right. Once you get to Cape Horn, it's definitely not over. Well, so let's jump to that moment then. Um, you guys are sailing along, like I say, third place, I think. Very close third, you know, like this is all pretty good. Um, where are you <laughs> and what happens? <laughs> so we had a, a pretty frustrating couple of hours. We had a problem with um, getting the second reef lock on. So Dong Fong just stormed past us while we were trying to sort it out while we... So we went from second to third. We were sailing along pretty windy um, and nothing kind of untoward going on, just normal sailing, not particularly nice sailing conditions, just being really fire-hosed with water. But um, then all of a sudden this huge bang, um, top of the rig hits the water, uh, boat goes flat, there's uh, four of us on deck, five people down below, um, suddenly everyone's on deck and we're trying to figure out exactly what's happened. Um, I just remember Charlie's face when he came up, he'd been off watch. Um, I think he actually was awake at the time, kind of looking at the computer and obviously everyone on board instantly knows what's happened. And just the, the disappointment in his face, knowing that having not finished, uh, leg four, taking us out of leg five and then, um, leg six and then leg seven, not being able to finish, that was kind of, the results part of the race was was over at that point and you know he him and mark had put that campaign together from the beginning and i'll never forget his face when he came up on deck just realizing that that was over and it was all kind of right let's salvage what we can from from this and head to safety because by no means are we in a safe place right here so mm -hmm. it was all hands on deck um to make sure that the boat was safe 
um, save anything we could. And fortunately, we're only 100 miles from the Falkland Islands, um, which was, to me, just the biggest relief. We hadn't been close to land for so long, and it was awful that the rig had broken and everything that went along with that. But just knowing that we were not too far from land was kind of the only good thing that had happened to the team in quite a long time. Um, and we headed there to to see what we could do. I can imagine, I can imagine, as you say, you know, that first fear, oh, I mean, a spreader or the end of the mast going through the hull is is pretty a realistic, you know, sort of possibility. But, you know, you get everything under control. You know you're going to be okay. The Falkland Islands, like you say, they're not too far away. There's not a lot at the Falkland Islands. And then even when you've got to the Falkland Islands, there's a long way to go to get to Irijai or, 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 or the next port of call. Um, and then... You sort of embark on this amazing journey. Before I ask you about what you guys did to, to sort of jury rig the boat, after you do a leg like the Southern Ocean, I can imagine you're thinking, I am going to pull in. I am going to have, a, you know, a beautiful meal. I'm going to have a soft bed. I'm going to have whatever. Here you guys are arriving in Port Stanley with nothing. I mean, did you even know where you were going to be staying? Did you have anything? Was it just your six kilo kit bag and that was it? That was literally it. And we were, so I obviously spent a long, lot of time in Brazil. Um, so I was really looking forward to the uh, arriving there and know they've put on a great party and a couple of caipirinhas. So that was kind of every day in the Southern Ocean, I was thinking, well, at least it'll be 25 degrees. We can go to a beach, have a caipirinha on the beach and everything will be great. Um, so that was pretty sad that <laughs> we weren't going to end up there. But um it was pretty surreal, to be honest. So we motored through the night, um, just trying to keep the boat as together as we could. It's amazing how much stiffness the rig puts into the boat. So we had to be really careful motoring upwind, um, making sure that we didn't do any more damage than we already had with losing the rig. Um, and we arrive on a Saturday morning, kind of 7.30 in the morning, I think it was. So like beautiful, sunny day pretty cold um, and windy and we're all pretty used to Saturday mornings in any kind of town you know coffee breakfast is available kind of everywhere mm -hmm. and this guy who had been arranged by I think um, Rick through the rate Rick Tomlinson had helped um, he'd spent some time down there and knew some people um, so we were met at the dock there's not a lot of places you can moor a race boat um, in the Falkland Islands and um, we're kind of tidied up the boat, tied it up and went to make a plan. And we thought, well, fresh food. We haven't had that for a while. Let's <laughs> breakfast. And they kind of said, mm, Saturday, not a thing that happens here. <laughs> um, so we went into this tiny little B&B &B, um, and they had the heating on and all of us had kind of blisters on our faces um, from being out in the cold. And that um, for me, the, the change in temperature being warm and inside, um, you hadn't taken... I'd been wearing the same thermals, I think, probably since day two. So almost two weeks later, <laughs> and we're all sat in this room, just kind of digesting everything that's that's happened the previous 24 hours. Um, just kind of not believing that we're really there. Um, I guess on one hand, you're really happy that you're, you're safe, you're on dry land, but you're still, you know, ultimately the race as a team for us is going to be very difficult to get a good result in now. We're going to have to work even harder um, to, to get, 
get a result that we're really proud of um, in the race. So, yeah, I think that it's just such a mix of emotions at that point um, and a pretty strange place to be, but amazing um, to have to have been there. Um, not somewhere that was on my bucket list of places to go. Uh, very much a left turn, very much a um, unexpected adventure, and certainly something I think as a team, I'm sure you guys all look back on with a lot of pride because what you do next is I think quite remarkable. Um, you know, you try and leave, you get a mechanical issue with the with the engine, the boat comes back and you realize time's ticking away here. We've got to make this journey to Itajaí. We've got to do it. You know, you're converting ballast tanks to fuel tanks, all this sort of stuff. Um, did you find a random lamppost? Did you go, let's go and find a lamppost? How on earth did the lamppost come about? Well, so I personally can't take a lot of credit for that because, um, so Nick Dana, who was our boat captain and bowman, um, has an amazing engineering brain. And we were met by a guy who really looked after us. He did a lot of repairs to boats that, um, came in with, Southern Ocean damage. So that that was kind of his thing. And he had a, a shed full of kind of bits of old boats and everything. And so it was actually, I think it was one time a lamppost, but it had also <laughs> been used as a fishing mast. Oh, right. Okay. So it, it wasn't from the street that we took it <laughs> and put it on. But um, yeah, it took quite a lot of welding. Um, it had, I mean, it had a sheave on it um, to hoist the, the sail that we had, then we had, we had a couple of sail makers. So Stacy and Tom and Tony got involved in recutting some sails to make a jib. So the boat could kind of, um, they, I think it, the plan was for it to go upwind, but I'm not sure it ever did uh, really go upwind, but um, yeah, it was a real kind of, everyone kind of bought the skills that they had outside of just sailing to um, make the best of a bad situation, try and do whatever we could to get the boat to Brazil as fast as possible. Um, so it was definite, you know, and again, not just the sailing team were involved in that. We had a lot of people um, involved either with the race in Brazil um, or um, who knew, had contacts in the Falkland Islands who were helping us out. So um, as far as that goes, we couldn't have been any luckier with the people that we had involved at that point. And you do get the boat to Itajaí, gets delivered to Itajaí, um, you know, it, it, it... I think the old Alvi Medica rig, you know, I think, I think that was the mast that sort of went back in it. The boats kind of, you know, carry on going again. Um, is this something, is it things like this that as a first timer, I mean, you were sort of hinting at it before, you don't realize that actually the race isn't necessarily between the start gun and the finish line. It's these little moments as well. Yeah, definitely. I think you obviously set out to finish every leg um, and yeah, it would have been amazing to have seen the, the potential that we had with the team results wise had things gone differently. Um, but that is just part of the race. You can't guarantee anything. So I think that was something that it took until this point for me to realize that it's kind of a privilege to even make the finish line, let alone get a good result. Um, and that's kind of what I mentioned earlier about not really feeling worthy of winning that first leg because we hadn't had any of these experiences that by this point in the race I've now got. And so you kind of appreciate the result so much more when you've been through everything that, that the race brings, um, 
with the sailing, but also with, with everything else that happens. You said at the beginning of this that you got some advice uh, telling you not to do the race. Um, you've done it now and I'm sure it, it tested you. Um, do you want to go back and do that test again and, and see what happens next time? Um, yes and no. I think um, I've been incredibly lucky to have had the experience of doing the race, um, but it takes everything from you. If, if, if you can't put in 100% to it, then then again, there's no, there's no place for you on board. And I think um, it would be really easy to sit and say, yes, I'd love to, yeah, I'd love to do all the great bits again, but <laughs> hard bits, I don't know. Um, so yeah, with, with, with the right team, with um, everything kind of perfectly, then yeah, it's an incredible race to be part of, but I don't know like, right now if I have that hundred percent in me and I would, I wouldn't want to, to be part of a team knowing that I wasn't putting in that hundred percent. So, um, I think, I think out of respect for the race and the, everything that it entails, um, I think it's easy to sit at home with a cup of tea and think like, Oh, wasn't that bad. And then you actually think back and think, yeah, I mean, you're away from home for a long time. You're away from your family. Um, you put your family through a lot when you do the race as well. Um, I know my mum would be pretty happy if I never went offshore ever again. Because um, it's, it's, it's hard for the people who are unsure as well because they're worried about you. And they're, they're supportive um, in the way that you're doing what you want to do. But I think it, is, it's, it, would, be, it would be bad of me to, to not respect the race um, in the way that it, it needs to be respected um, because it's a massive challenge and there, there are dangers involved. Um, but an incredible thing to have done um, and I couldn't have been more proud of being part of the team that I, I was part of. It's interesting. You can hear it in your voice um, how uh, how much that race has, has got under your skin and uh, I'm sure changed you for the better and, and, and given you that mental toughness that you sort of talked about earlier. Um, thank you very much for talking us through a lot of that um, highs and lows and a lot of tough moments and a lot of proud moments as well. So thank you very much. Thank you.